0: Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode. And of course, beware of spoilers.
1: Welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. And here we are into our third year after our second birthday i always find those like ordinal number things confusing but whatever <laughs> here we are with episode 53 our long-awaited dive into the world of trauma with toxic avenger
0: the Woo. og Woo! the og are we calling him uncle lloyd we Lloyd? call him lloyd?
1: most people call him uncle lloyd uncle lloyd yeah
0: and with uncle lloyd you know what i was thinking about just while we were saying this i was like what does trauma even mean? The stock answer apparently that we are given is that trauma is the ancient Latin word for excellence in celluloid, (laughs) which is uh, clearly not real. But yeah, no. Yeah. (laughs) I was just like, what does that even mean? Where did it come from? I was wondering, but apparently it came from who knows the infinite mind of Lloyd Kaufman? Yes, yeah, uh, which exactly. is uh, inscrutable and impossible to know. <laughs> it, it is a an enigma. Yes, what is it? An enigma wrapped in a conundrum. Wra- or th- yeah, or wrapped in a riddle. Yes, yes, that is the mind of Lloyd Kaufman. Truly, and this movie is no exception. It's the movie that made *Trauma* famous. It wasn't the first film that they ever made, no. but in fact, this one came out about 10 years after they started producing movies for Troma. So Toxic is 1984, but as Juliet pointed out while we were watching, next year will be the 50th anniversary of Troma films.
1: Yeah. And the 40th is... anniversary of Toxic Avenger, which is pretty cool. Lort.
0: Lort. What a legacy. <laughs> what a legacy. 50 years of Lloyd Kaufman and his bat shittery. <laughs> and... <laughs> <laughs> cuz you can't really think about a trauma film too much it more just happens to you
1: you know yeah,
0: it's true i mean there are some thoughts that can occur while you're watching a trauma film but critical thinking aside <laughs> yeah you got to yeah. you kind of kind of turn your brain off
1: yeah i think definitely definitely in the later ones for sure but i will say the flip side of that is if you are able to sort of balance turning your brain off but also like looking past like all of the crude humor and the parody and the boobs and everything else the spectacular violence there's a point mm-hmm. there and you can see like Lloyd Kaufman's very like clear moral code throughout these films which sounds like wild when you look at them on the surface but there is like a very clear Like, he's got very clear lines between, like, good and evil and right and wrong. And he doesn't waver from that throughout, like, his whole body of work, uh, at least, like, the sort of post toxic trauma work. You'll see, too, as his films progress, like, there are some language used in this one and in some of the earlier ones that he actually does not use. Like, and I give him credit, like, he's somebody who has learned and progressed with the times as a filmmaker. But even the language that's used that, like, you know, would not make it into a movie today, even an independent movie, is always done intentionally to make the bad guys really despicable. Oh, yeah. And and like, you know, that's a, a kind of a gray area in film today. Like, even with your villains, like, is it worth using harmful language to make your bad guys bad, et cetera. Back then we weren't having that conversation in cinema. So sometimes you can just be shocked at some of the language being used in trauma films, the early trauma films in particular. But actually when you step back for a minute and say, okay, this was 1984, but it's only the bad guys using this language. And it is very purposefully in their most
0: heinous moments. You're like
1: okay, all right, that wouldn't happen today, but there's an intention there.
0: Yeah, you know, I was thinking while we were watching this, parallels of both being white, older, cis-Jewish men aside, Lloyd Kaufman is kind of like the poorer taste Mel Brooks. Yeah. Like, he's pushing limits when it comes to racial language, Mm -hmm. in general, like, slur language. He's kind of pushing limits with that. He's pushing limits when it comes to, like, jokes with Nazis, Mm -hmm. like you know, Mel Brooks was doing that for a long time, too. Yeah. And he was always just kind of like, look, you know, if we can't make fun of these people, then what are we doing? You know, and Lloyd Kaufman kind of pushes that to an uncomfortable extreme in 2023. But we also have to acknowledge like, these are bad dudes. Yeah. yeah. Like the Nazi police chief is obviously a bad guy. Mm -hmm. Like he's not getting away with this. He's, you know, we have a reckoning with that. And same with the language that's used. So yeah, there's definitely some parallels there between Lloyd Kaufman and Mel Brooks. One of the others is that they can't seem to die. (laughs) They're both like ancient. Yeah. And they're still like involved with making movies and writing and stuff, which is just completely bonkers to me. Like not only that they're both still doing it, but they're both still getting away with it. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, to a certain extent. If you haven't seen a trauma film, or if you haven't seen the Toxic Avenger, Toxic Avenger is like the like magnum opus of trauma. It's got to be one of the most popular films that they've ever made, outside of like maybe Class of Nukem High and Poultrygeist, or maybe even Trauma's War. It is a cult classic. It was a box office flop, which most of these films were. Totally. By yeah. the
1: way, yeah, you know, none of these films have seen like. Mass box office success. These are not your summer blockbusters, but they've enjoyed a cult following, you know, a very particular cult following that has given them, you know, far more life than, you know, any logical person would think that they
0: probably should have. That is in no small part thanks to lloyd kaufman and his kind of like zany antics and and also michael hertz uh, michael hertz being the producer and sometimes director but always off camera never like you know taking the spotlight or anything he's kind of like this weird nebulous figure like the lex luthor of (laughs) you know like he we never see him but he's always present he's omnipotent in these movies Normally, you know, I'll summarize a movie and then talk about the main cast of characters. Like, if you've never seen a trauma movie, I'm not sure that you would recognize any of these names. Yeah. But the premise of the movie is this kid who's working in a health spa, who's being bullied, gets this ultimate, like, act of bullying that happens to him where he gets thrown in some toxic waste. And... Although it was mean spirited, he ends up becoming this like cult hero where he gets all of the strength and like grows in size and becomes kind of like fireproof and toxic waste proof and bulletproof and ends up being like this hero where he ends up killing the people from the health spa that had tortured him, who were also running over children and like, you know, killing people with their car. But he ends up getting revenge on them and then... Becoming a hero to Tromaville, which is the fictitious New Jersey city across the bay from New York, where a lot of these Troma movies occur, like Class of Newcomb High occurs there. And it's like an anti hero story, except Toxie really is only an anti hero because he looks different. Right. I was just thinking about this too, like it kind of parallels to Mal Brooks's movies. There are a lot of fat jokes in this movie. Yes. And a lot of them are mean spirited. And there's also some jokes about disabilities that are in pretty poor taste. Mm -hmm. Toxie's girlfriend, Sarah, is blind. And there's some jokes about her that are in pretty poor taste. But it's on the part of the bad guys. Right. And there are some poorer taste jokes in other trauma films. Yes. But in this one in particular, it's very clear, like, the underdog is the winner in this case. And the people who appear different or have different abilities are the ones that are like the heroes in the end. Yeah. Which is kind of nice because in the 80s, especially in the mid 80s, you weren't seeing a lot of that, at least not in like horror movies or horror adjacent movies.
1: Yeah. It's kind of interesting. If you've never seen a trauma film, I would definitely say see this one. You know, it is the most famous, you know, it really set trauma up to be a part of the horror genre. They had made Mother's Day before this, but prior to that, they were making sex comedies. Mm -hmm. And this kind of all came about Lloyd had the idea for Toxic Avenger in the 70s. Many people don't realize this, but Lloyd Kaufman has actually worked on some pretty big movies. He is the one responsible for finding the iconic disco in Saturday Night Fever. He was in charge of locations. He also worked on the Rocky movies. And when he was working on Rocky, he got the idea of setting a horror film in a health spa, and was further kind of spurned on by this article that he read in the late 70s that said basically that horror as a genre was dead. And being Lloyd Kaufman, and I think this was an article that came out pre-Slasher, like pre-Halloween and all that, but being Lloyd Kaufman, he was like, oh, no, it's not. I'll show (laughs) you. I'm going to make a horror film. (laughs) And like I said, they made Mother's Day, but it was really toxic avenger that really put trauma into the horror genre, and they never looked back. There's still a lot of sex comedy in these movies, but that's sort of the defining film. If you've never seen a trauma film, watch this one. The thing that I feel like happens as we get further into the movies is that they get a little more extreme. They're really pushing the limits in ways that, on the one hand, like, I do applaud the innovation and the idea to like really push boundaries and to say like we're independent cinema, like Mm -hmm. we don't have to follow your studio rules. So let's see how far we can push. But I think that for a lot of people, Troma's kind of reputation comes from some of those later films Mm -hmm. and might not be the best entry point if you're unfamiliar with their style because those do go pretty extreme in language and sensibility again like always with that moral compass Mm -hmm. but i think you have to kind of have that set up with this film
0: yeah it's kind of funny you had said mentioned earlier that tromas war was a box office flop lloyd kaufman almost throws his movies in the face of the box office yeah a little bit Like, like he really doesn't care if it's a flop like as a kind of a underscore to that The Toxie movies, there ended up being four, and every one of them except for this one were all flops. Yes. But he still kept making them. He was like, no, we still have more story to tell, which is so weird because the Toxic Avenger ended up becoming a Saturday morning cartoon, which like, what? Yeah. (laughs) After this movie, making it into a sanitized cartoon cartoon that was for children like this isn't like you know some schlocky like mad tv cartoon this was like a saturday morning like children's cartoon yeah that they made out of this movie and it was because the Toxie is such a lovable hero he just wants to do good you know and use his powers to like do good and take care of sarah <laughs> that's it yeah. so
1: sweet the saturday morning cartoon thing kind of brings me around to the interesting place this movie sits in terms of sort of like pop culture, cultural commentary, and not just in horror, which is like, man, oh, man, in the 80s, were we obsessed with toxic waste? We talked about this a lot in our Chud episode. So like, please go back and listen to that if you haven't. But, you know, there was definitely this rising awareness of environmental issues starting in the late 70s and into the 80s. And the whole like, toxic waste, like, where is the waste from the city being dumped, you know, whether that's underground, whether that's in a smaller community across the river, etc. There was this growing awareness and a lot of like, societal anxiety about it. And we see that reflected not just in horror, but in all kinds of media, and so interestingly, in kids' cartoons.
0: Yeah. I mean, like, that's Ninja Turtles, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. And, like, lest we forget that Ninja Turtles also started out as sort of a body comic that ended up being children's media. Yeah. Because initially, like, the original TMNT comics are not for kids. No, they're not. (laughs) They're definitely not. You bring up a good point, and I kind of want to segue into, like, Lloyd Kaufman's kind of principles i guess you could say when making a movie even if you are familiar with trauma and their movies and lloyd kaufman try and go read a lloyd kaufman interview i challenge you because lloyd kaufman has to be one of the most scatterbrained and like maybe it's because when he's doing interviews he's also doing six thousand other things at the same time but also like juliet has watched the behind the scenes for many of his films i love them so much (laughs) And he just seems to be a total space case. Like, how any of these movies ever ended up getting made and finished and edited, who even knows? But one of the things that he is very clear about is that he's anti corporate. Yep. He hates corporations. He does not think that media, nor news, nor anything like food, anything like that should be owned by a handful of giant mega corporations, which, like, we're here to say also, like, yeah. God bless, Co-signed. snaps to him. <laughs> but he also was incredibly anti-Reagan Yeah, to kind of go down that rabbit hole. This movie has to do with deregulation causing this toxic waste to be, like, both the toxic waste that Toxie was dumped into and also the waste that is around the home that he lives in. And, like, potentially the entire town, like getting into the water supply and all this stuff is because of deregulation that happened under Reagan, which he really started the deregulation part in 81. And there's also, you know, of course, he's famous for trickle down economics, and the war on drugs, which this movie also touches on the war on drugs, and tax cuts. The bad guys in this movie kind of embody all of this. They're selling drugs. They're selling steroids in this health spa and other drugs. I'm sure they're deregulating the toxic waste disposal, which is creating the situation that Toxie was, you know, conceived in. I guess you could say. And there's also the tax cut thing, and the mayor who's like this huge, corrupt, like you know, nasty guy who's telling the police what to do and all this stuff. And I'm just like. All of these things are coming through as being, like, totally anti-Reagan, which, I mean, I'm here for it. Chud was definitely a commentary on that, too. Mm -hmm. But it's very obvious that Lloyd Kaufman is like, screw Reagan, forget this, like, you know, screw corporations, whatever. The, The entire movie is a commentary on that. Like, very, very clearly, if you look past the little kids getting run over and, like, dogs getting shot, you'll see that.
1: Yeah, well, and, you know, to a sort of a less specific or less corporate thing, I think it's also just screw people who pick on those who have less power than them. Right. You know, that's another, like, common kind of 80s, both horror and non-horror trope, is the whole, like, bully thing, like the bullying of the little guy. Like, we see that in everything from, you know slasher films to, uh, like, John Hughes movies, but I think with Lloyd's, he goes kind of overboard to show you that, like, people who pick on people are bad Mm -hmm. and deserve to be punished, you know? Yeah. Um, He keeps that abundantly clear.
0: Yeah. And God bless him for doing that. I mean, even if the other stuff kind of surrounding those subjects in the movies are, like, totally wild, like... A guy getting turned into a toxic mutant right. and then going on, <laughs> on a killing spree of bad guys. It happens in other ways, too. Like, Poultry Geist is one that's just coming to my brain, like, right off the top of my head. And Poultry Geist, he does the same thing. Yep. It's like, oh, look, corporations are bad. Look at the, you know, the conditions in which people are working and, you know, how awful this food is for you. And, and here's our, you know, our hero who's like the anti-hero and the little guy. You know, Mm -hmm. it's adorable. He's really trying to change the world and like put a good message out there through his really raunchy, schlocky movies. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The one thing, though, that does get like a little sticky for me is that when you watch the makings of the films, it's like sometimes it's like, oh, my God, like. I know this is like the principle around your movie, but you're not treating the people that work for you very well. So like that's the kind of flip side of that is, um, you know, the makings of they're really fun on the one hand, because they really show like the grind that it takes to make independent cinema work and just like how much literal blood, sweat and tears goes into making a film, even an indie film, like just how much work, how many people, et cetera, really take to make something even of a trauma level. But there are times where specifically because you mentioned Poultry Geist, I'm thinking about like the making of of that one, which we watched fairly recently. And it's like you see on the screen, the message is like, you know, like, these corporations don't take care of their workers. And I'm like, oh, my God, Lloyd, your workers are
0: miserable <laughs> on the set. Ugh. You know, the weird part, though, is, like, does he know that people are miserable on the set? It doesn't seem like it. No. Like, he seems very kind of
1: oblivious
0: yeah. to that. in a- Again,
1: in the makings of. You yeah. Know, and obviously, these are things he did not make them. But, like, Trauma does put them out on their streaming service. So, obviously, like someone is maybe signing off on this yeah yeah he never seems like really aware (laughs) of like kind of what people are dealing with or (laughs) struggling with to achieve his vision
0: yeah i definitely get that vibe from him is that it's not so much that he's deliberately negligent it's more like he's indirectly negligent because he is doing 80,000 things all at the same time. And so like, he'll be like, hey, that person looks like maybe they're not having a good time. And then immediately like his mind shifts to something else. Like maybe he's got some like attention problems.
1: Yeah, I will also say and this is not to excuse it at all. It is like the cautionary tale of any kind of like grassrootsy DIY work. I've talked to other people that work at nonprofits about this. Like if you're all allegedly there for the mission, sometimes like being so mission driven can cause you to not care for yourself and others because you think you have this nobler goal. Mm -hmm. And I think that's some
0: of what's happening there. You
1: know, it sucks, but it does happen, you know, like it's not to excuse it, but I see how that happens.
0: Yeah. Especially with like long established indie um, efforts I think there's an attitude of, well, we don't have a lot of cash to spare, or we don't have a lot of time, so you're going to have to, like, do some stuff that you wouldn't otherwise do at, like, a regular rote corporate job. And sometimes that gets pushed to an extreme. Yeah. Which is, like, your workers are really tired, or they're not in a good attitude because other things are happening, I would say that that's probably a common thing that happens for a lot of indie production studios or indie efforts in terms of movies. I would say that the majority of stories that I hear about indie movies are that they suck. (laughs) Like the set of the indie movies suck more than I hear like really good stories about their experiences on set. So I think that's twofold. I think some of it is that, yeah, it does suck because
1: often- you don't have access to a soundstage. You have access to this location that you got from a friend of a friend of a friend and you can only shoot there right after they close between midnight and six AM <laughs> Yeah. Two days and that's the only time you have that set, you know. So there are like conditions, but I also think too with film very specifically, I think until you've been on a set, like I think sometimes people don't understand the work of film you know, or the work of, I'll even say theater too. It's not all like, oh, I'm going to – like some people don't even understand the waits. But even if you understand like you might wait a really long time just to get a shot set up, they just don't tend to understand like all of the work that has to go into. They think you just like walk onto stage and do your scene and you feel really good about it. And that's that. And that's just not – You know, I think people don't understand like the work of art in general, (laughs) like to make whatever art it is, whether it's theater or film or even visual arts or whatever, like it's actual work. You know, it's not just this romanticized, beautiful thing. So I think with indie film, it's kind of like a both and it's like you don't have the resources, but also you are likely dealing with a lot of people who have never been on a set before. And so their expectations versus the reality is like really 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 out of uh
0: whack there so what you're saying is not everything is shot in camera and that stuff has to be edited and that you don't get the sound the first take (laughs) and that everything isn't shot on the first take yeah that is bonkers juliet yeah
1: right (laughs) i don't believe you
0: (laughs) so let's talk about the kaufman legacy the trauma legacy okay because Although, I know we, you know, we talked some shit about the settings, which, you know, fair. Yeah. We want to show the good and the bad. Yeah. I wanted to bring up a little bit about Lloyd Kaufman's legacy in filmmaking because it is pretty intense. I wanted to talk about not only the fact that, which we'll get to this, the James Gunn factor. Yeah, of course. I wanted to talk about all of the actors that Lloyd Kaufman has, quote unquote, discovered. Mm -hmm. So keep in mind that Lloyd Kaufman also, like, he's worked in the past with Roger Corman. He's good friends with John Waters. Oliver Stone? Yeah.
1: Weirdly enough, they went to Yale together?
0: Yeah. So like Oliver Stone and him worked on that magazine that Yale did. It was like a precursor to Mad Magazine. I think I read that the, the two of them worked together on it. But in either case, they both went to frickin' Yale. Lloyd Kaufman has a degree, or went to at least Yale, which is pretty crazy. (laughs) But these are just some of the people that he discovered or, like, had as actors in really early movies in their career. Paul Sorvino and Cry Uncle. Paul Sorvino, who later went on to work in the frickin' Godfather movies. Vanna White of Wheel of Fortune fame (laughs) was in Graduation Day. Kevin Costner was in Sizzle Beach, USA. J.J. Abrams in Night Beast, which we would never maybe have the lens flare look if, if not yeah. for Night Beast. Vincent D'Onofrio in The First Turn On, which, holy cow, like, mm-hmm. Vincent D'Onofrio, who's one of the biggest actors in movies and TV right now. And he was supposed to be in Toxic Avenger, but he wanted too much money. Marissa Tomei in The Toxic Avenger. She was in one of the scenes in The Health Club. Michael J. White in... Toxic Avenger Part 2, which God bless, I love a Michael J. White movie. <laughs> Billy Bob Thornton in Chopper Chicks and Zombie Town, which is hysterical to me. Samuel L. Jackson and Death by Temptation, which that is hilarious because Death by Temptation is definitely not a tremor feel movie. It's much more serious. Yeah. Trey Parker and Matt Stone and Cannibal the Musical, we might never have had South Park if not for Cannibal the Musical. David Boreanaz in Macabre Pair of Shorts. We might never have had Angel and Buffy, if not for that. (laughs) James Gunn in Tremio and Juliet, and then Carmen Electra in The Chosen One. And this is not an exhaustive list, mind you. This is just what's on Wikipedia right now. But I kind of left James Gunn until later. But also, James Gunn, now the leader, the creative director of DC... He directed all of the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. He's done Peacemaker for HBO. This is just off the top of my head, but pretty prolific career. And he almost did not have any of this stuff happen. Well, after the first Guardians movie anyways, because of some tweets that he made post trauma work. Yeah. Wow.
1: Yeah. They yeah. were
0: dead baby jokes. I mean.
1: Yeah. And I mean... So, to get into the James Gunn of it all, you know, he wrote. James Gunn of it all. (laughs) (laughs) He wrote uh, Tromeo and Juliet and really considered Lloyd Kaufman a mentor and co wrote the book with Lloyd Kaufman. All I Need to Know About Filmmaking, I Learned from The Toxic Avenger, The Shocking True Story of Troma Studios. (laughs) So, he was around, and you see him in some of the makings of, I think it's, I can't remember if it's Toxic. Yeah, I think it was Toxie 4, right after he had then gone on to start to direct horror films proper, Slither, and he wrote Scooby-Doo, weirdly <laughs> enough, like the 2000s Scooby-Doo that like most people know and love. That was him. He got his start in Trauma. I mean, before he was involved in Trauma, he and his brother were making zombie movies in their backyard. So it makes perfect sense that your next logical step would be to get in with independent filmmakers and, you know, just try to work, you know. That's how Troma and Lloyd Kaufman got these people. You know, you have these people who need experience. They have a dream and he provides that for better or worse. But the whole James Gunn Marvel firing thing, yeah, it did happen because of some tweets that he had made like shortly after his time in Troma. And he really came out and kind of said, as that was all going down before he was rehired, like, hey, I'm not happy about this decision. I accept this decision because I was young and said stupid things that a young person says, Mm -hmm. you know, and I wouldn't say those things now. And I accept that they would upset people, but also like, you know, these are my roots. I was young then, I am a grown up person now, and I would make different decisions. I think that was like really mature of him, and I think that that whole situation really kind of highlighted the very slippery slope in like delving into what people said or did as younger less formed human beings,
0: yeah, I mean, he didn't say like, "Oh, I didn't do that or whatever yeah he he, he was like it. I did it, but also I didn't do the things that were described in these stupid tweets, it's also social media. Yeah. You know, we're recording this a couple of days after Melissa Barrera was let go from Scream 7. Yep. And now we're kind of on the other side of things where, you know, everybody's always like, oh, liberal media, liberal media, liberal liberal social media, blah, blah, blah. And now we have another situation where somebody has used their social media to take a stance on something, which... That is not what James Gunn was doing. No. He was making some pretty tasteless jokes. But tasteless jokes are not a crime. Right. And they're also not a reflection of a person's character. Especially tasteless
1: jokes from, like, just, I think 15 years prior. Right. Yes. I would hope that people would be, would evolve between, you know. In, yeah. In a decade and a
0: half. And, like, to expect somebody to have a sanitized social media presence from the time that they're a young adult all the way until the time that they have like a legit professional career and to go through and actually like delete stuff like that is a pretty insane expectation yeah um now melissa Brera's situation is a little bit different she posted you know in support of palestine and to stop the genocide and to stop the war and spyglass which i think is the studio yes. that's making scream was like, um, we're letting you go because we don't tolerate anti-Semitism, which is completely not the exact same thing as what she said. She's certainly not anti-Semitic. And she's come out to underscore that, that she yes. is not anti-Semitic. She also comes from a country that's war-torn and has a genocide that's happening. So she wanted to show her support, which I think is important. And to have consequences like that, Especially in a post-COVID world where there were people who were actually coming out and saying that COVID wasn't real and were Uh anti-vaccination. And for those people to not have any consequences for the things that they said and then to have a hair trigger on other things is like just baffling to me. I will be very
1: curious because, as you said, like this news just broke like two days before we are sitting here right now recording this. And even in the time that it takes between us recording this and this episode publishing next week, I'm going to be very curious to see what happens. You know, if this stands, because Jenna Ortega has now quit the series in solidarity with Melissa Barrera. And fans are, you know, fans are really having a conversation about this. There's a lot of talk in the horror community. And although this is not of the sort of pop cultural level as the James Gunn Guardians of the Galaxy Marvel thing, you know, Scream is not Marvel, but Scream is, I would argue, one of the biggest modern horror franchises. So I think this is getting some attention. I'm just going to be curious to see how this, if this stands or not, Yeah, you know, because with James Gunn, it did take, I don't remember the exact timeline, but it took a while for him to get hired back. And I think the really interesting thing about that is when he got hired back and got the opportunity to then make Guardians 3 and finish that story I don't know. This is only my perception here. But it felt like he really leaned into, like, let me show you what a serious filmmaker I am with this movie. And now I can never watch Guardians 3 again because it makes me cry
0: too much. Thanks, James Gunn. (laughs) He was slated to direct Volume 3 in July of 2018. But before the project started, he was let go by Disney. And then he got rehired. 8 months later in March of 2019. Okay. okay. Which is insane because for whatever reason I was thinking it between volume 1 and volume 2. And I can't believe that 2019 was that long ago and also that short ago cuz it feels like
1: it feels it's like been a decade. A literal different
0: lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Especially in terms of like media and how we treat, you know, people's social media presence and stuff. It's just it seems like a totally different time. The
1: thing I find so interesting to bring it back to Troma and Lloyd Kaufman proper is how immune Lloyd has been to all of this. And I don't know if that is just his kind of tenuous place of being this cult icon who's like the one cult icon that people kind of know outside of horror. And he has such a loyal, protective fan base. But it's just been a wonder to me. My partner and I were talking about this when the James Gunn thing happened is the fact that we've never seen this kind of outrage or criticism from the sort of mainstream media world leveraged at trauma or at Lloyd in any way that is so significant that it threatens to like ruin them in the same way that it feels like it does to other people. I don't know if that's just because trauma is like still just indie enough or if people are rightly just kind of recognizing, like, you know, he's created his own little world here, and he does actually have principles behind what he's doing, and I may not agree with the way it manifests, but he's just over here doing his thing because he's so outside of the studio system and doesn't have to answer to shareholders and the parent company of a parent company of a parent company. You know, I don't know, but it's fascinating to me that he's just been really, like, Outside of, like, a lot of these, like, bigger, like, I I hate this term, but the whole, like, arc of cancel culture. Yeah. Which
0: is confusing and icky and whatever, you know. He's kind of bulletproof to that sort of, like, criticism. But also, he doesn't rely on studio money. Right. And I think with the fan base that he has, he'd have to do something pretty significant or obvious in order to, you know, alienate everybody. Yeah, yeah. He's also just been
1: very transparent
0: Mm -hmm. about what, you know,
1: trauma doesn't pretend to be anything other than what it is. And I think that that works to their advantage. Like, you know what you're going to get with a trauma film.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And because he's not beholden to any certain studio for cash, it's all Michael Hertz, you know, funneling cash in and, you know, they're not like having to go to places to beg for money. And they're also not linked up with like very many big name actors. Yeah. So there's less of that that he kind of has to contend with. He also doesn't participate in a lot of social media. There's actually a festival, a film festival that he does kind of in the face of big movie Mm -hmm. festivals, which they have at the Mahoning in Pennsylvania. They had it in Utah for a while, and then they had it in New York, and now they have it in Pennsylvania because probably because it's cheap. Yeah. But Trauma Fest kind of operates outside of that, like in the face of big mainstream ratings and popularity contests and things like that. So he's just kind of like, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> you know, outside of something really, really bad, I don't think that there's ever going to be not trauma. Yeah there's always going to be a presence. I mean, he is also kind of a hero for people who want to make indie films. Absolutely. To like show them, hey, it doesn't actually have to look good, or be (laughs) even be good (laughs) in order for you to find your following or, or to help other people to help start kickstart the careers of other people or to like rub elbows with people that maybe you could get information from or get help from later. That's kind of like, Lloyd Kaufman's legacy a little bit
1: it really is I mean he you know and Joe Bob Briggs has obviously kind of taken up this mantle too but I think Lloyd has been more vocal about it for much longer than Joe Bob has is just an advocate of no one needs to give you permission to make your movie like if you want to make a movie make your movie right even if it's in your backyard with your VHS camcorder, you know, hearkening back to the 80s and 90s here, or, you know, now your cell phone, like, make your movie, you know, his original book was, you know, make your own damn movie, Mm -hmm. you know, now he's got like, you know, produce your own damn movie, distribute your own damn movie. He's been just such a good advocate of, and I appreciate this, because I think so many people think in whatever creative pursuit, but especially film, that you somehow, like, have to have permission right, to make a movie. Like, no, you can make your own movie. Right. And you should make your own movie.
0: Yeah. Like, you should make your movie. Yeah, they definitely, I think, are... I mean, they started with sex comedies, which are, like, the OG, raunchy film that you needed, like, almost nothing to produce. right. And then they moved on to Toxie, which even though the movie is maybe like objectively poorly shot in parts or like not good quality, there's some pretty good lowbrow effects in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there's definitely a lot of heart in the movie. And, you know, honestly, because it's all practical effects,
1: the effects have aged really well. They, They are, you can tell they're kind of homegrown practical effects, but they get the job done. yeah.
0: Yeah, lots of latex, lots of fake blood, lots of squibs. Yep. But it works out. It ends up working. And because they're kind of so low brow, I think that it was inspiring to other people to like, hey, I can make my head explodey effect. And maybe it doesn't look great. And there are other trauma movies where they don't look good. But why not? Like, just do it. Just start. And yeah, okay, you don't have distribution. Yeah, you don't have a lot of money. But that doesn't mean that you can't make a movie that you're proud of. Exactly. And I think that you can see that there's a lot of love and pride in the work that he puts out. Even if quality-wise, maybe it's gone a little bit downhill or gone a little kind of off the rails. Like, it goes all over the place. And some of the movies aren't horror movies. You right. know, like, *Trauma's Word isn't really a horror movie. It's more just like completely anti-Reagan
1: yeah but yeah
0: there's a lot of heart there's a lot of thought that goes into the movies and I think there's a pride that you can take in the in the finished product yeah I definitely appreciate that especially because there's a lot of rules that Lloyd Kaufman breaks like in the movies like in this one in particular there's a kid that dies he gets his head run over Mm -hmm. there's a dog that gets shot These are rules that kind of didn't get broken a lot in the 80s. Like you didn't kill a kid in a horror movie. You didn't shoot the dog unless it was old Yeller, in which case you shot the dog. But, you know, he was definitely breaking a lot of rules back then. But I think he still took a lot of pride in the movies that he made. Do you know the three rules of a trauma production? Don't trip the babies. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I don't know the three rules. What are the three rules? Okay.
1: Rule number one is safety to humans. Rule number two is safety to people's property. And rule number three, in much smaller letters, is make a good movie.
0: <laughs> that's awesome. He um, has that on
1: the set of every trauma film.
0: Aw, that's so sweet. Yeah. Lloyd Kaufman, the vegetarian, also. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he had, which is, I mean, I guess if you watch Poltergeist, you probably, if you watch that, you'll be like, oh, okay. And you know what's funny? I just thought about this, too. Lloyd Kaufman might be kind of controversial, like, semi, like, fringe controversial because of the movies that he makes, but he was in Guardians of the Galaxy. Yep. Like, he has been in big movies as an actor, and nobody cares. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. If anyone would be cancelable by Disney, you would think it'd be Lloyd Kaufman. Yeah, and he's (laughs) shown up in Guardians. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. As a little, uh, I think, thank you gift from James Gunn. He was like, let me just put Lloyd Kaufman in this movie. Yeah. As an adorable old man. (laughs) It totally was. Like when when we were watching the movie and I saw him, I was like, what? Who is that? Why is Lloyd Kaufman here? But it was great. So next time, as we do,
1: we're going to take on a holiday horror film, and this one is going to be a brand new release that is uh, getting ready to premiere on Shudder. It'll be available December 1st, so we will watch it and do a quick turnaround for you. We're going to be uh, watching It's a Wonderful Knife which, yes, is a horror parody of It's a Wonderful Life. It's got Justin Long. It's got Catherine Isabel. It's got William B. Davis from The X-Files. So, you know, it's got everything I need. (laughs)
0: Uh, I'm excited. Juliet's seen it. I haven't seen it yet. But, you know, I'm down for a holiday horror movie. So I'm excited to watch this one. It's a fun one. Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com and
1: hear bonus episodes at patreon.com attack of the final girls. We're Attack of the Final Girls
0: on Instagram and TikTok. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records.
1: Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode. And rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show.
0: I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary.